At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea. Totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of 7th Generation. Find 7th Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at 7thGeneration.com. Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Diva podcast. I'm Monica Reinagel. And I have something really fun to share with you this week. A few weeks ago, Eddie Phillips and Yuna Jada of the Food We Need to Talk podcast were my guests here on the show. The three of us and our two podcasts have so much in common in terms of our shared mission to bring a little bit more sanity and science, but also fun, to the project of eating and living healthy. And I've heard from so many of you how much you enjoyed that episode. So this week, I have more of Eddie and Yuna for you to enjoy, because we actually continued the conversation that we started on this show over on their show, Food We Need to Talk. So if you already listened to both podcasts, you may have heard it there. If you don't, I think you'll enjoy hearing it here, and you should definitely go check out more of their great show. Here's Eddie and Yuna. Food We Need to Talk is funded by a grant from the Ardmore Institute of Health, home of Full Plate Living. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we are talking about something that I think has been quite buzzworthy for a long time, and that is mindful eating. Buzzwordy. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yuna, I know even at the conferences that I attend now and the conferences that I run, there's always some sort of talk about mindful eating. It's kind of everywhere. Well, okay, I don't know about you, but I am a notorious mindless eater. Like, I eat way too fast. It's like whenever I'm eating with someone, I know I'm going to be the one that finishes first. And then also, I think a fourth of the food I eat in a day is probably eaten in passing or while standing. When I'm like <laughs> walking through the kitchen. Guys, I can't walk through my kitchen without like grabbing a piece of dark chocolate. It's like it's like the payment I make to walk through the kitchen is like <laughs> I take dark chocolate. Well, it's definitely something for us all to work on. I mean, sometimes when we're on the phone, we're doing our podcast stuff. I'm actually eating my lunch and we're trying to figure out the next episode and talk about multitasking and about mindlessly eating. Guilty. <laughs> yeah, I'll hear Eddie go like, yeah, so um, t- tomorrow, <laughs> let's, let's talk about it. I'm just kidding. Today, we're talking about something that I think all of us need to be better at practicing. Not only would we enjoy our food more, but we'd probably also make better decisions if we just all ate a little bit more mindfully. On today's episode, what is mindful and mindful-ish eating, why should we care, and how can we actually do it if we're a notorious mindless eater? I'm Yuna Jata. And I'm Dr. Eddie Phillips, Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School. 
And you're listening to Food We Need to Talk, the only podcast that you can listen to while eating and still have it count as mindful eating. And welcome to our guest today, Monica Reinigel of the Nutrition Diva podcast. Monica, thank you so much for being on with us today. Very excited to be here with you both. So the first thing that I wanted to ask you is I was reading your bio and I was astonished because (laughs) there was culinary school, there was a music school. I saw you'd been an opera singer. So I was like, wait, this is my lady because, you know, I used to want to be a classical pianist. So I was like, my woman understands. When I saw your bio, I thought, oh, we have a lot in common. Basically, I just wanted to ask you, how did you get into the nutrition stuff Mm. from what you were doing? Well, necessity is the mother of retraining, right? So I did go to music school and I worked as a professional opera singer for about 10 years here in the States and also in Germany. But I did finally get to the point where it was hard to see like an entire life's worth of career unfolding in front of me. Yes. (laughs) And I realized I was probably going to need some other means of support. Fortunately, I had this interest in health and nutrition, just a a sort of lay person's interest in it. Although singers are always kind of focused on physical health and nutrition because, of course, our bodies are our instruments. So there is, for better or for worse, a lot of focus on, you know, what to eat and all of that. I'm not sure we always get it right, but there is that that interest. So I had that interest in it and I happened to get a job for a publishing company that had a health press and I was hooked and just started working my way up mostly through the publishing industry, writing, editing, and eventually went back to school, got a graduate degree in nutrition, got my licensure, but always with the intention of using that education and that information to do what we do now, which is to create podcasts, write books, uh, articles, you know, content information for people who were interested in learning more. I wanted to be a source of credible nutrition information because as we both know, there's a lot of incredible nutrition information floating around. (laughs) (laughs) And for our listeners who may not yet be familiar with the body of work and the number of years that you've been at this, can you introduce Nutrition Diva to us? So the name of that podcast actually was a little bit of an inside joke because of my music background and my theme music as well (laughs) is the entrance of the Queen of Sheba from Handel (laughs) Opera, just a little trivia. Amazing. But we launched that podcast in 2008. So we are celebrating our 15th anniversary this summer, which is, I can't believe that we reached this milestone when we began. It was sort of a, a lark, you know, it's like, well, I hear people talking about podcasting, whatever that is. And yeah, sure, we'll we'll give it a try. And I thought it would be sort of a flash in a pan, like people would be interested in a while and then they'd move on to something else. I did not foresee that podcasting would become such a huge part of our mediascape and such a satisfying medium to work in. I love being a podcaster. I saw on your LinkedIn profile, Yuna, that you you say, I'm basically a performer at heart. And I, <laughs> I really identify with that. I think what I enjoy most about podcasting and public speaking are a lot of the same things that I enjoyed about performing. You know, I, I guess I'm just a ham. 
No, it's so true because I, I think about the th- part I loved about piano was the concerts. Yeah. And the part I hated about piano was practicing. the practicing. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, how do I do the concerts with none of the practicing? Hmm. So there's a little bit of prep involved in podcasting, but it's not like hours and hours and hours of saying the same thing over and over and over right. to try to get the inflection perfect or whatever. Good point. So what we wanted to talk to you about today was the topic of mindful eating. Because as a person who has spent many, many years tracking food, I just found the whole idea of mindful eating extremely intimidating. It seemed like it was supposed to be this thing that should be easy for everybody to do because, you know, the the rhetoric around it a lot of the time is like, well, just eat like you did when you were a child and don't worry about things and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I can't turn my brain off, people. Like, I don't (laughs) – it just seemed so, so difficult to me and tracking was so much easier. So I just really wanted to break it down with you today because I understand that you are an expert in mindful-ish eating. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And you are not alone. I mean, ironically, mindful eating, it's like, you know, meditating and gratitude journaling and yoga. It's supposed (laughs) to make us healthier and happier and more relaxed. But ironically, a lot of people that I work with end up feeling super stressed out about it because they feel like they, they can't do it right or they know they should be doing it and they feel guilty about not doing it. And I think that this is all based on some misunderstandings, one of which you just alluded to, that mindful eating is somehow the opposite of keeping track. You know, that if you're eating mindfully, then you should automatically know how much you should be eating. I think there are so many misconceptions about mindful eating, and a lot of people have tried it, felt like they failed at it, or found it just miserable, like it took all of the pleasure out of eating and rightfully abandoned it. So mindful-ish eating is my attempt to kind of reclaim what I see as some real value and benefit to this and discard some of the baggage that we seem to have picked up along the way. So <laughs> when, I, when I first heard the phrase mindful eating, I guess I was not prone to hyper-recording and using apps and taking pictures. That's like our new grace, right? We sit down and we take a picture <laughs> and post to Instagram. Okay, now we can eat. Like That would not define me. So is mindful eating about doing that tracking or is it about transcending that and just sort of saying, I feel as though I need fluids now and therefore I will drink and I will enjoy them, but just maybe go a little deeper into what it looks like when you're doing it well. Well, the way I define mindful eating is just being more aware of our experience when we're eating or when we have an urge to eat, a desire to eat, and just tuning in a little bit more to our physical sensations. And that would include learning to recognize and trust things like hunger signals and satiety signals. Goes way beyond that, though. It's also being aware of thoughts or feelings that may be part of that desire to eat. What's driving that urge or desire to eat? It can be so many different things. And the reason to pay attention to those things is that sometimes it can allow us to respond more effectively. So if one of the things that's driving us to want to eat something is that we're feeling sad or bored or lonely, and we want to just escape from that unpleasant feeling, if we're a little bit more aware of that, then we might consider, is there something else I could do to address that unpleasant feeling that might actually be more effective? But I think it also opens the door for us to realize like, no, I want to eat. I have a desire to eat this because it looks delicious. 
It's, you know, it really looks appealing. I'm not technically hungry right now, Mm. (laughs) but this looks special. You know, do I want to go ahead and enjoy this? And just to be conscious of that choice so that we can actually enjoy it. Maybe a useful distinction, Eddie, is that the opposite of mindful eating is mindless eating. And when we're eating mindlessly, we're not paying attention. It can be a time when we eat more than we mean to, mm-hmm. it can lead us to eat food that we're not even particularly enjoying because we're not paying attention. But even more tragically, it can rob us of the actual pleasure mm-hmm. of food that is enjoyable because we're just checked out. We're not paying attention. I think part of the reason why tracking made me so mindless of an eater, I would say, was even though there was all this energy going into like how many grams of protein am I eating? How many calories is it? What time am I eating it at? There was so much data. Mm -hmm. And yet it was like my pleasure around the food was, it didn't matter. It was like non-existent. Like it didn't matter how things tasted. It didn't matter if I was full, if I was hungry, if I had to eat this much protein in the day, I would like eat to the point where I was overly full because I had to eat this much protein. And there was other days when I was hungry, but I was like, no, no, this meal is only supposed to be this many calories. So I stopped there. And so I think after doing that for years, it's just the idea of, am I hungry now? I was like, I don't know. Like if my stomach growls, I know, but beyond that, I just, I have no idea. Right. We have a lot that we can draw on to start answering that question. One of them might be a physiological sensation, but by the way, your stomach can be growling right after you've eaten. That's (laughs) not always a... A good sign. But remember, we also have like cognitive tools at our disposal. We can also consider, well, how long has it been since I've eaten? Could I really be hungry 20 minutes after finishing that meal? Or is this hunger, as I like to say, you know, a sheep in wolf's clothing? So we have physical sensations, absolutely. But then we can also think about, well, you know, when's the last time I ate? How big was that meal? How long before my next meal? Another thing that people who have severed their relationship between their physical response to food (laughs) and the food is they perceive hunger as an emergency. Mm. Yes. And part of this is having been trained by media and other influences saying that, you know, if you don't eat every X number of hours, your metabolism will shut down. Your metabolism will slow. And we internalize that message to the extent that when people, I work with people all the time, that the moment they have a sensation, which is really just, I am not currently full, they mm-hmm. panic. And everything else has to wait until they can eat something. They carry food around so that there will never be more than 60 seconds between noticing that they are not currently full and you know being able to eat. And somehow it's wound up in their minds with keeping their metabolism going. So yeah, we've really lost track of our relationship to food, I think. And mindful-ish eating is a way to start rebuilding a little bit more trust, both in ourselves and our ability to make good choices. But also, I want to say a little bit more trust in food as not the enemy. I'm kind of struck by the part about like, all of a sudden I'm hungry, it's an emergency. Is that a reflection of, oh, I don't know, millennia of humankind starving? You know, basically the, the main task was to go out and hunt and gather enough food so that you wouldn't be constantly hungry or you'd have enough energy to actually go out and and get more food? Well, I'm speculating here because, of course, we don't know what was going on in hunter-gatherer days, but I would imagine that going long stretches 
without food was a much more frequent occurrence. You hunt when you can, you you eat when you can, and that you know being hungry was not as big a deal then. That there wasn't an expectation that I should never hmm. feel any hunger. Got it. Uh, so I, I tend to think that it's much more modern than that, Eddie, and more having to do with this indoctrination, this weird idea about our metabolism and that eating more frequently keeps our metabolism running faster, which is obviously a myth, but but it's a very successful one. I also think for me, because I'd spent so many years not eating enough, it became kind of a traumatic response that like I never wanted to be hungry because I was like... I just had so many years of always being hungry that I became very, very intolerant of it. And I think if you've been eating enough for a while, then it it stops being such a big deal. But I know for me, for sure, it was really tied to like, I don't ever want to be hungry again. Right. And think about kids who grow up in food insecure housing or food insecure situations. And they frequently experience not just the little tummy rumbling, but true hunger Mm -hmm. frequently. And consistently and over long stretches of time. And what you've just described, Yuna, I think explains something that people sometimes struggle to understand why people who are food insecure are so much more likely to be living with overweight or obesity. Yes, that's so true. I've, I've actually, yeah, I haven't thought about that in a long time. The other question I had for you is about enjoying your food. I think that's another thing that I really got disconnected from was actually enjoying the food you're eating and something that I've noticed and this might be just my experience so it's not it's not a scientific finding people okay I'm just going to disclaim that but I've just noticed that the people who I know in my life who really love food and like really savor it and are excited to try a new cheese my roommate is so excited if she finds a new cheese to try it and she'll taste it and she'll be like this one tastes more nutty or this one tastes more salty, blah, 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 comparing it. This one would go well with this or whatever. Those are always the people that have never restricted food and have such a good relationship with food. I've never seen them like not eat something because they don't want to gain weight or because it's this number of calories or because it's unhealthy. Whereas the people who I know who have had a lot of like dieting in their past are the people who kind of just eat food, don't really comment on it, and don't seem to really care about the taste that much. And it was such a paradox to me because I was like, the people that love food are never the people who are like struggling with their weight in my life. Isn't it also interesting that people who are really tuned in and they're foodies and they get excited about the finer distinctions between two different kinds of cheese are also, in my experience, not the ones who will then finish the block of cheese, Yes, right? They will focus on it, they will enjoy it, and then they're done after a couple of bites. And truly, you know, what we know from sensory research is that your enjoyment of any food, assuming you're enjoying it, right, is likely to be the most intense on those first couple of bites. And then it's sort of diminishing returns after that. There's some sort of sensory dulling that happens. So one tip for people who are trying to kind of cultivate this way of experiencing food is to really focus on those first bite or two of food, because that is when you are going to be able to get the most information and the most pleasure. It also allows you to decide whether it's worth finishing right? Hmm. How many times have you taken a bite of something and finished it before thinking like, I don't know, do I, am, am I even enjoying this? You know, like it's, <laughs> we're not programmed to take a bite of a cookie, say, that looks amazing and then say, you know what? It's not as good as it looks. I think I'm going to 
save that for a treat that I'm going to enjoy a little bit more and stop eating. We tend not to do that. I'm, I remember growing up, there was so many desserts I didn't like and so many candies I didn't like. And I would like say no to them. If I, if I didn't like them, I would be like, no, I don't like that. And it would be so easy. And as I got older, because I think I made all desserts off limits and all candy off limits, it was like all of a sudden, all desserts were good. All candy was good. As long as it was sweet, I was like, oh yeah, this is like so yummy. And I just remember thinking like, man, I used to be so much pickier when I was little. And I think it's because nothing was off limits that I actually had preferences. One of the things that I'm reflecting on, Monica, is this whole idea about that you taste it really well on the first bite. It's it's the same mechanism if you walk into a room and there's an god awful smell. Right after thirty seconds, <laughs> you, you don't somehow you've you, yeah. you, you've accommodated to it. So just recently, I was at a um, farmers market in Norwich, Vermont. This beautiful bucolic scene on a rainy day. There's a woman who took the care of growing her own plants in Costa Rica to make this one of a kind chocolate, and she had little tasters out, and I. You know, grabbed my piece. I chomped. I put it in my mouth. I started chomping, and she like shot me this look and yelled, "Savor it! Wow! Don't chomp it!" She worked hard like, on that, Eddie. <laughs> uh, exactly, like freaking savor it. And you know, she said, "Like you're missing it. Right. You know, m- chocolate has to melt in your mouth, and at body temperature, it, it's now it's liquid, and now you can get the smell." And and I was like, "Oh, thank you. You, you know, you're you're my you're my guide today." So. We need to learn that. I think we need to keep on practicing it. Mm-hmm. If that's part of mindful eating, sign me up. A lot of this sounds like something that's been out for years, both in book form and lots of conversation, which is intuitive eating. So I was wondering if you could distinguish or compare and contrast mindful versus intuitive eating. You know, I am not sure I fully understand what everybody means by intuitive eating because I have seen that term applied to the idea that your body knows what you need. And therefore, Mm. if you succeed, if you are an intuitive eater, if you get that intuitive eating thing right, it will direct you toward the foods that will best satisfy your nutritional needs. I'm not sure that's true. So the example of that is if you have a strong craving for a food, that's a sign that your body is lacking some nutrient that's in that food. Mm. I don't buy it. I don't, do you? No. I mean, they've shown this in studies, right? When they feed rats hyperpalatable foods, so things like cheesecake, right. and they give the rats their regular food again, they just won't eat because they got used to the cheesecake and they, they just would rather starve than eat regular right. food. So, so that's one little piece of intuitive eating that I think is not at all reliable, that you can judge your nutritional needs based on the foods that you're craving. I think there are a lot of other reasons that we crave foods, like that they are hyperpalatable or they are suddenly in front of us, or we have emotional associations with those foods or a million other reasons that make more sense to me. I'm not sure that our appetite is a very reliable guide to our micronutrient status. I think there's other aspects of intuitive eating that have more to do with Am I hungry now? Am I full now? And there I can get a little bit more on board because, Yuna, as you were describing, when you were tracking so obsessively, you never stopped to ask, is this more than I want right now? Is this enough for me right now? Because you outsourced that authority to your tracker. And that's how you knew when it was time to stop eating is when you hit your calorie (laughs) count for that meal or you know, what you what you were going to eat that day because it was being prescribed from this outside source. I am in favor of reclaiming some of that authority. And as we talked earlier about trust, about starting to understand how my body feels when I'm 
actually hungry and what it takes to satisfy that and some trial and error. If that's what's meant by intuitive eating, I'm all about that. But I I just think we can combine our, I don't know, intuition, if that's what you want to call it, or our awareness, our mindfulness with cognitive skills to make some of these decisions about how and how much and when we're going to eat. I don't think we need to turn it all over to our, I don't know, subconscious brain or something. With that, I think we're going to take a quick break so I can just find a nice piece of chocolate to savor. (laughs) We'll be right back. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea. Totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of 7th Generation. Find 7th Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at 7thGeneration.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Food We Need to Talk is funded by a grant from the Ardmore Institute of Health, the home of Full Plate Living. Full Plate Living helps you add more whole, plant-based foods to meals you're already eating. These are foods you're already familiar with, apples, beans, strawberries, and avocados. It's a small-step approach that can lead to big health outcomes. Full Plate Living includes weekly recipes and programs for weight loss, meal makeovers, and better blood sugar management. Best of all, Full Plate Living is a free service of the Ardmore Institute of Health. Sign up for free at fullplateliving.org. And we're back with Monica Reinagel, the nutrition diva, and we're having a lovely conversation <laughs> all about mindful eating. I'm tempted to say that Monica should sing sing us out of the podcast. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Monica. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but that would be good. Yeah, you got to give me a little bit more notice and things like that. (laughs) So what we were talking about right before was the idea of tracking. So first of all, is there such a way to track food that is not unhealthy? Because I have found that when I was being very, very restrictive, tracking was very, very unhealthy for me. And it was definitely something that I was using to eat as little food as possible. But as I've come into a healthier mind space, there are times when I track my food and I feel like it's not really damaging my mental health. Like I kind of just like check in like how much am I eating? And I do default to eating a lot less protein than I should. So I do like to check up on it every once in a while because I'm never eating enough. And I 
kind of don't want to talk about it a lot of the time because I feel like there is a stigma in certain places on the internet that if you're tracking food, you're promoting eating disorders, you're promoting restriction, and it's it's bad. So I guess the question is, is tracking always a bad thing? This is such a good question. It reminds me a little bit about the conversation we're having right now about ultra-processed foods or processed foods. And my answer to that is like, well, what is the function of the processing? I think we need to look at that in order to decide whether this food deserves to be in our foodscape or not. But I think it's similar with the tracking. What's the function of the tracking? So you're right. Tracking can be super useful and valuable in certain situations. It's definitely a way to kind of increase your awareness about what you're eating. Some of us, it's not until we commit to some sort of tracking practice that we realize just how often we are putting things in our mouths without even thinking about it. And it is a great way to collect information and to do exactly what you're describing, Yuna, like just to check in, like, am I ringing the bell on protein or getting close to it more days than not? That sort of thing. I think those are really valuable uses of tracking, but generally that can be done by tracking for a few days, a couple of weeks to gather that information and then act on it. It's not something that we then need to do forever. But I often have people come to me who have been tracking forever. They hate it. It's very intrusive. It takes up a ridiculous amount of time. It's very socially isolating. You know, they're afraid to eat things if they can't find it in the database, but they're afraid to stop tracking because they think that that is the only thing that is standing between them and you know, obesity, that that, that tracker is their, you know, their judge, jury, police chief, everything, executioner. (laughs) So when I hear somebody that has that sort of a relationship with their tracker, then I feel like, okay, let's see if we can find an off-ramp for you. And are there other ways that we can gather that information that would be useful to us or increase our awareness in ways that would be useful to us that don't require you tracking, looking up every single thing you eat so it goes into your tracker. Sometimes that's a long process, but I actually created an app that was my answer to this question. That was a way that I could, something I could give people that would offer them the awareness that they're going to kind of keep track of what they're eating, you know, pay attention to what they're eating and the ability to assess how it's kind of stacking up nutritionally without having to log everything. It's called the Nutrition GPA. I introduced it about eight years ago. It was such an interesting project. So in order to create this app, and it's free, you can find it in the app stores, you answer 10 yes or no questions about what you ate every day at the end of the day. It takes you about a minute. And then based on your answers to those 10 questions, it's the same 10 questions every day. So after a few days, you got them memorized. And based on your answers, you get a grade for the day, sort of like a school grade, just kind of a quick read on how you did that day. And then we average those grades over time so that you get a nutrition grade point average. Mm. And what I was trying to emphasize there is that it's not your best day or your worst day. It's sort of your typical day that is going to determine your outcomes But of course, we're always super focused on our best days and our worst days. We we really don't pay attention. So I was trying to kind of bring that into balance. So the challenge for me, and it's an interesting thought experiment if you'd ever like to do it, do it before you get the app though. Mm -hmm. If you only had 10 questions and they had to be yes or no questions, what would you ask about somebody's diet to gather as much information about their overall diet quality and the dietary patterns in as few questions as possible. 
Wow, that is a good challenge. I kind of feel like we should send them to Monica after the podcast now and see if they match up. That's so but, funny. But, but listeners that go to download the app for they the- will find out what I settled on. Yeah, don't tell us the answer, guys. I want to try first, yeah. and then and then I'll look it up. No spoilers. I like that because I need to feel like I'm having a proactive role in my health. Like that's part of the reason why I love tracking is because I feel like I'm doing something and it's trackable and I can mm-hmm. see over time. And it's funny that you say the grade point average thing, because when I think about the times when I was being the most restrictive, I would have the best, best days and also the worst, worst days. And I actually think like overall, if you averaged it, it would be such a worse quality diet than now, where it's like every day is kind of okay instead of like fantastic (laughs) or horrible, if that makes sense. Well, right. And also, I know that you talk a lot about that black and white thinking that we fall into. And the other problem is that when people are on some sort of kick, like, okay, I'm going to get healthy, I'm going (laughs) to do the things, and they're tracking and they have a day that isn't good, the temptation is just to stop at that point, right? (laughs) And so this was also just an approach to to attempt to catch people and say like, no, it's okay. We all have those days. I have those days. When I'm teaching this system, I, I teach a program that's built around this app. And when I am presenting it for the first time, I'm always quick to whip out my app and show them. It's like, I have F days. I, (laughs) the nutrition diva, (laughs) have F days. You know, I have a few A plus days, not very many, but I have a, you know, at this point, four year (laughs) nutrition grade point average in the B range, which for me is all it takes to know (laughs) that you are getting enough of those healthy habits often enough to actually be getting the benefits of them and not overdoing those things that we can easily overdo so often that they are really kind of undermining your health. If I see that B average, I feel like nailed it. (laughs) And that's something that we can commit to long term, right? But if it's perfection or nothing, how long can we keep that up? Of course, you know, you might have gone to school with people who had to have a 4.0 average <laughs> and, and every grade mattered. But I, for, as someone who was never had that opportunity to get such good average, I, I love the idea that averages are average and that's okay. Right. And that it really takes years to measure someone's grade point average. It's, you know, even a grade point average for a semester is not indicative of how you're doing at school. It was just maybe that semester was better or worse as as the professor saw it. So but the I, longer you have been tracking that, the less impact any one day mm. has on that overall balance. And I think that's really important for people to see when they're starting to beat themselves up about a day that just went completely off the rails mm-hmm. and they go in and and they see like, wow, I really bottomed out today. But look, I still have a B average. Because I clocked in a couple of months worth of good enough days. So it uh, begs my next question. As you talk about mindful or mindfulish eating, is it more of a skill or is it a habit or is it a philosophy or you can choose D, all of the above? I think it's a practice, Ah. Eddie. I think, and a practice, we all have a lot of practices. You have a medical practice. The three of us have a podcasting practice. I have a mindful eating practice and Yuna and I have occasionally musical (laughs) practices. But any practice is not something that you achieve or accomplish or own or get. It's an ongoing relationship with a set of tools. Mm. And it's that ongoing relationship where the goods are, right? That's how I view it. So to make mindful eating concrete, the only 
exercises that I have been told to do with regard to mindful eating have been the raisin exercise. Like, the I'm raisin. guessing you know what I'm oh, going to say. God. Yes. <laughs> so, like, okay. Can you, can you, can you yeah, okay. explain for the listeners okay. what they Basically, the... <laughs> you get given a raisin or whatever, and, and like, the teacher is, like, passing it out. I've done this on several, like, meditation courses, and they're like, okay, like, first of all, they give me the raisin. It's already basically in my mouth by the time, no, I'm just kidding, by the time they get to the next person. But they're like, okay, look at the raisin, and you're, like, looking at it, and you're like, okay, I'm bored. And they're like, okay, now listen to the raisin. You're like, right. what? the heck okay I guess so okay fine and they're like now like put it on your tongue like what does it feel like like now start to chew it now what does it taste like what does it smell like all these things so you spend like whatever a minute eating a raisin and then they're like and that's how we should treat food and I was like it would take me 23 hours of my day to eat my meals if I were eating like this like truly can you bridge the gap between (laughs) how we're actually supposed to do this and what they presented us that raisin exercise has ruined mindful eating (laughs) So many people, right? So we're here to reclaim. And that's why I had to I had to kind of name my approach mindful-ish eating. And we can share some resources with your listeners in the show notes or whatever with some more exercises that they can do. But I'll leave you with like a couple of concrete tips. Let me just start with my favorite one. We've already talked a little bit about really paying attention to that first bite or two, both to get the maximum enjoyment out of something yummy, but also to make sure to decide whether or not to continue. But another one that I have found to be so impactful is something I call mouthful fork empty. And I actually have to give a hat tip to another podcaster, OG podcaster, Daria Rose, for coming up with this. And her insight here was that as she, when she was trying to practice more mindful eating, she noticed that the minute she put one bite into her mouth, while she was chewing, she was already like composing the next bite on her <laughs> fork, already stabbing, you know, bits of lettuce or, you know, shoveling, you know, composing <laughs> the next one so that the moment she swallowed, the next forkful was already on its way. And so she implemented a practice. And this is so much easier than what you will often see, which is putting your fork down between every bite. If right. I had to do that, I think I would kill somebody, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. It's awkward and it's just <laughs> awful. But this you can do. You can do it when you're eating with friends and nobody will know you're doing it. You can do it while you're actually enjoying a conversation. It doesn't impede the rest of the experience. But if the rule is, and it takes a little practice, is just that you don't start loading up the next bite either picking it up with your fingers, if you're in an Ethiopian restaurant, or loading up your fork or your chopsticks until you've actually swallowed the bite in your mouth, a number of amazing things happen. First of all, you're much more likely to actually chew your food, which is a good idea. That's great. A bonus of eating. Right? You are so much more likely to notice the, the bite of food that's actually in your mouth. You know, instead of already having your attention fully focused on the one that that is to come, it slows you down a little bit. And that's much more likely to trigger, you have a prayer anyway of noticing that you've had enough to eat before you've completely overeaten because Mm -hmm. it gives your satiety signals a chance to catch up. And it's just so much more relaxed way to approach a meal. And I feel, I mean, you tell me what you, what you two think. I feel like that's doable. Yes, of course. I mean, I was just already thinking about how I'm about to have dinner soon. And I was like, oh, this is going to be the new thing I'm going to practice during dinner. Yeah. It's very eye-opening the first time you do it because you'll notice what a little chipmunk we are. We all oh, are, totally. the, you know, and how we're just kind of multitasking the whole time. It's really interesting. What do you think, Eddie? I'm ready to try it. I'm looking around for something to 
eat slowly. He's <laughs> <laughs> talking to eat during our recording. I'm even thinking how it would change the experience that I had back at the uh, farmer's market where I was ready to chomp down the whole chocolate and, and just sort of take take a bite at a time and, and just experience it. I love the, your description of it. It just makes me want to just slow down a little bit. Not to the point yeah. where I'm going to be eating for hours, but just slow down and experience. Right. We don't have to chew that raisin a hundred times <laughs> or every mouthful and definitely don't need to be putting our fork down, but we can leave it empty until we've finished the bite that's in our mouth. So on the note of being more mindful when you eat, I think because I have my best friend as my roommate right now, we basically eat all meals together. And right. that is so fun. I love that because like phones are not on, TV is not on. It's just like we cook and then we eat. But then whenever she goes away, she's a very, very intelligent mathematician. So she's always going away for conferences and whatnot. And I have to eat alone. I know I'm like not supposed to scroll on TikTok or watch TV while I eat. But okay. I'm just like, what am I doing? Like, am I just sitting here? Like, what am I doing? Yes, I've got you, you know. And this is another big resistance to mindful eating is that we've been given the instructions that we can never be distracted while we're eating because we're going to eat too much. And definitely, like, if you're sitting in front of the computer working or you're sitting in front of a screen watching Netflix or something, that is, you know, with an open bag of chips, that's definitely an invitation to overeat. But... That doesn't mean that if you're eating by yourself, you have to just stare in silence at your plate. <laughs> Most of us, I think, in that situation and might enjoy reading. That's like the only time that I can read my novel because if I wait till I go to bed at night, I'm too sleepy and I fall asleep right away. Yeah, so, me too. So a lot of us might enjoy reading the newspaper, reading a novel, or yes, scrolling Instagram, TikTok, or something while we eat. And that can be harmless, but here's a way to do it that I think is a little bit more mindful. It's a... A baby step, right? And that is, can you alternate back and forth? So you sit down, you've got your your book or your TikTok or whatever, take a few bites of food, put your fork down, scroll for a while, you know? Mm. Then turn your attention back to your plate, eat a little bit more, and just alternate back and forth between the two. So you're not literally doing them at the same time, but to, you are enjoying both activities at the same session. And I find that to be a nice sort of middle ground. What do you think? Yeah, that makes so much more sense because I'm just like, there's no way I'm going to sit here in silence and just eat. Like, it, it just, who am I talking to? Guys, I never stop talking. I talk all day long. <laughs> so, like, I just, it just, it makes no sense to me. But, that, I mean, I feel like that is the only way I've found of not eating my food in five minutes is if I'm eating and then I'll, like, sit back and, like, relax against the back of my chair and then I scroll while I'm doing that. And then when I'm ready yep. to eat again, I put my phone down and I'm like, okay, I'll have another bite now. And that I have found to be a lot better. I mean... The worst thing is like bringing my food to the, I try to never bring my food to the computer and work while I eat because then it just makes food so stressful for me. I'm like, this meal was supposed to be relaxing and now it's turned into work. And yeah. Well, and, and, plus, I'm unlikely to remember anything that I eat yes. in front of a screen. Totally. Like, well, what's the point of that? <laughs> totally. My go-to is probably listening to the radio or a podcast. If I eat alone, that, right. that's my chance to listen, take the bite push the pause button if needed and sort of, and I love that idea that you're not multitasking, but you're mindfully switching from one to the other. 
Right. Which is all we really can do. Isn't that the neuroscience on multitasking? Yes. Is that we're really just switching back and forth super fast and it's n- actually not that efficient. Yes. Yeah. So thank you so much, Monica, for coming on the podcast today. Can you just shout out where can people find you and find more tools to help them with their mindful-ish eating? Well, I'll give you a, a mindful-ish eating tool. You can find that on my website, wayless.life slash mindful. And it's just a, a collection of these practices that we have found to be really helpful with people that I work with on sustainable weight management. And then I hope because you're podcast listeners, obviously, that you'll come <laughs> check out the Nutrition Diva podcast. And I have a second podcast, much younger. Actually, it's about the same age as Food We Need to Talk oh. called The Change Academy. And in that podcast, I get to focus more on this behavioral stuff, less on the nuts and bolts and nutrition, and more on why we do the things we do and how we can make that work better for us. Amazing. So I think there's so much overlap between our podcast guys. So if you like our podcast, I, I guarantee you will love Monica's podcast as well. And she's been doing it for 15 years. Like, that is so cool. There's 15 years to go back and listen to. <laughs> well, now that you guys are here, I think it's safe for me to retire anytime. And definitely <laughs> Please don't. Carry, carry this forward. Please don't. But uh, Monica, Ryan Nagel, the Nutrition Diva, thank you so much for joining us today. Yuna and I have our homework. Our listeners have, <laughs> have a direction and uh, something to try out with lots of wonderful tools. And we look forward to working together in the future. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much to Monica for coming on today's show. We will be linking to the Nutrition Diva podcast as well as all her other links on our website, foodweneedtotalk.com. If you find yourself wanting more episodes to listen to while you eat mindfully, you can find bonus episodes on our membership at foodweneedtotalk.com slash membership. And if you want to connect with us on social media, you can find us at foodweneedtotalk on Instagram. And I'm at the official Yuna on Instagram. And if you want to connect with Eddie, where are they going to find you? You could find me savoring a small piece of chocolate. At a farmer's market <laughs> in Vermont. <laughs> Food We Need to Talk is a production of PRX. Our producers are Morgan Flannery and Megan Oftermat. Tommy Bazarian is our mix engineer. Jocelyn Gonzalez is executive producer for PRX Productions. Food We Need to Talk was co-created by Carrie Goldberg, George Hicks, Eddie Phillips, and me. For any personal health questions, please consult your personal health provider. To find out more, go to foodweneedtotalk.com. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea, totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of 7th Generation. Find 7th Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at 7thGeneration.com. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.